session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. On Instagram Live, so not taking calls today, but you can follow me on Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books of the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Quick Fix by Jesse Single. The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. And so uh, I just, as is always the case, read a little bit about the book. It sounded interesting looking at uh, fad psychology, just kind of maybe pop psychology and things that we see on the internet. And as the subtitle says, how that can't cure our social ills. So it seemed like an interesting topic, but um, I don't know much else about the book. Look forward to reading it and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is A Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins. A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence. And so when I first saw that subtitle, A New Theory of Intelligence, I thought it might be about, uh, you know, there's the traditional IQ, then there's also emotional intelligence, social intelligence, but also even in the traditional uh, IQ, there have been different theories, gardeners, multiple intelligences. So I thought that's what it was, but actually it's a little bit different. It's really about what intelligence is in Jeff Hawkins's um, understanding, which is basically when you create models of the world and then can interact with the world using those models. And so Jeff Hawkins is in a way a neuroscientist, but not in the traditional sense. So he does neuroscience research, we can say, but not at any academic institution, which is usually the case. He is the co-founder of Numenta, which is a neuroscience research company. So it's not itself affiliated or part of a university setting, but they do their own research. And Jeff Hawkins himself is a little bit different than your traditional neuroscientist researcher. He actually uh, was an entrepreneur who helped create the Palm Pilot or the company Palm and in general was very much involved in handheld computing. So he was an entrepreneur, but in the book he describes that he always had an interest in understanding the brain. And so he actually even wanted to go study neuroscience, but what he wanted to study as he describes it was not really aligned with what the traditional academic institutions wanted to study. And so because of that mismatch, he kind of created his own path. And in reading the book, I get the sense from him, Jeff Hawkins, that he has some of this kind of uh, rogue scientist mindset, not maybe to the extent, but similar to someone like Elon Musk creating their own path, which I think has some good and some bad to it. Uh, But nonetheless, he has created his own path in studying the brain. I think he wanted to do it the way he wanted to do it in some ways. And so um, he's gone ahead and done that. So this book is divided essentially into three parts, and I'll I'll go through those um, three parts. And and throughout, I'll share some parts that I really agree with and 
found insightful. There's some parts that I might disagree with at least his perspective or his way of describing or discussing certain things, and I'll get into those as well. One part that I disagree in his distinction early in the book is he talks about the old brain and the new brain. And so the old brain includes, the way he describes it, thing everything essentially other than the neocortex, the outer layer. So the old brain is the emotional parts, the brainstem, all those aspects as he describes it. And then the neocortex is the more newly evolved, thus new brain, part that does in a way more of the, the what we consider thinking and the higher level thinking. And so I think making such a distinction to me is a little bit uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that to make it so black and white, old brain, new brain. Um, we know that the old model, the triune brain, that there's a reptilian brain, a mammalian brain, and then the human brain, that that does not hold up because we see that almost all animals, including even birds and other, not all, but many animals have similar brain structures to the human brain. Now we might have more neocortex in proportion to the rest of our brain. I think it makes up about 70% of the human brain. Um, but th this kind of old brain, new brain didn't really ring true with me so much. And throughout the book, I felt this um, tendency towards what might be described as a human exceptionalism. It's not explicit. It's just something I felt throughout the book that somehow saying that humans are somehow better than other animals or really emphasizing the importance of our intelligence in a way that to me uh, showed up later in the book too that I might get to touch on. Nonetheless, getting into um, some of his, his explanations or this new theory of intelligence, it, it was quite fascinating seeing his new or some parts of it that were new that I'll get into. But there is this theme which you've heard me discuss before in other books, including Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, also in Mark Solms's book, The Hidden Spring. This idea or this concept that the brain, when we traditionally thought of it as a thinking machine, right? We thought it thinks things, it sees things, takes in information and thinks, that it's really less a thinking machine and more a predicting machine or a predictive machine, meaning that it's constantly creating predictions about the world. Most of them we're not aware of in a conscious way. They're just happening all the time of what it expects to feel, see, experience in different ways. And then when things don't match that prediction, it actually creates a sort of reaction or response from the brain. Uh, and it might even update its predictions because of that. But it's really important to recognize that the brain is more of a predicting machine than a just thinking machine. So for example, as I hold the book in my hands in front of me, there's expectations that are happening constantly of all the parts of my experience of holding, what it's going to feel like, the pressure, how much it's going to give. You know, if I grabbed the book and it just crumbled between my fingers, I'd be very startled because that would not match my prediction that was happening essentially unconsciously. But in a way, I become conscious of it once there's a mismatch there. And so again, he builds on this kind of a foundational way of thinking that the brain is more of a predicting machine than a thinking machine. And so what he says is that this thousand brains is that uh, when we look at the neocortex, this outer layer, which is what we consider the most advanced and he talks about as the new brain for human beings, there are these 
cortical columns, basically 150,000 or so. And they're not necessarily that you can see them sliced up, but they are some ways of differentiating them. But these essentially these columns that are in a way independent, but they're also, of course, all communicating with one another. And those cortical columns, each one creates a type of a model or what he calls reference frames of different things, items, but also includes different concepts because he says uh, this holds true for even things like democracy, concepts like that, mathematics, language. But essentially there are these different cortical columns that are using these reference frames that then make these predictions about the world. And so that's how we kind of understand the world. And intelligence is essentially making these models about the world, these reference frames, to then be able to predict and understand the world uh, in that way. Another thing I found interesting in the neuroscience aspect in that first part of the book is that he describes um, neurons in a way that I hadn't maybe seen in this type of detail or at least this aspect of it. So if you're familiar with neurons, which are the traditional or typical um, brain cells, we have the cell body, which is kind of like, uh, like any cell has a cell, the main part or the cell body. It has an axon, this kind of like uh, long tube, which is where the action potential either fires on or stays off or fires on. Um, but then there are these dendrites, which are at the end of the, the cell, these kinds of um, tree-like branches. And actually on those dendrites, each one has many synapses. And I didn't know the extent to, to how the synapses kind of play a part or that, that each cell can have thousands of synapses. But not, not only that, the part that was really new, I did know there was many synapses. I didn't really kind of get all of that detail. Um, but that what happens is there are a lot of synapses that are close to the cell body, and these are called the proximal synapses. And these are the ones that are more likely when a neighboring cell communicates with them that would make the cell fire. So now the action potential runs uh, up or down, depending on how you want to look at it, the axon. and But that only makes up about 10% of all the synapses. About 90% are more of these distal or far away um, synapses. And as he says, it was unclear and no theory could really account for this, which seemed a little bit strange to say we could only have theories that account for what 10% of the synapses are doing, but 90% we don't know. And so what he says is that there's actually dendritic spikes or dendrite spikes where the uh, dendrites might receive information from neighboring cells that might, in a way, tease the cell, but not enough to make it fire. And so you might think, well, it's just teasing. What's the point? But what it's doing is it's priming or getting it ready to fire so that if it then is to fire, it will do so more quickly. The analogy he uses is like a runner who's about to start a race and hears ready, set. Now it's more primed to run. When it hears go, it's going to hit the ground running faster than if some other runner didn't hear that ready, set part when they start to run. So it's essentially this can be a model of how the prediction takes place in the sense that the dendrites that are getting information from neighboring cells, maybe even neighboring columns, is getting some information that helps predict what it thinks might come next, which can make it easier for then this uh, neuron to fire. So I thought that was interesting, an aspect of neuroscience that I myself did not 
really understand or have knowledge of. And so it's interesting to see uh, his explanation of that. So uh, he explains his theory again. So um, the reason why it's a thousand brains is like there's like these different, each cortical column um, is like a component that itself almost is like a brain or it's acting like a brain or has the intelligence of making these reference frames and making predictions and they all kind of act together and they aren't that different from each other as he says even though we think of the the visual cortex and the auditory cortex there can be some minor differences as at least how he explains it but they overall are kind of the same essentially what is it's happening is these cortical columns can take in information about almost anything uh, but just depending on what it takes information on it becomes that so it becomes maybe an auditory or visual or something related to language um, but essentially that's what he means by a thousand brains so that was an interesting and uh, theory and he's pretty he explains some papers they write so as I mentioned it's not part of an academic institution but his group Numenta they do release papers or write papers that are then even accepted at times in um, academic journals. So I don't want to give you the sense that his, his research is like totally on the periphery. He does try to um, be part of the mainstream as far as contributing to, to the science that is neuroscience. Uh, then the middle part of the book, the second section was about artificial intelligence. And what he says is like there's no I in AI, as he puts it at least at this time, because they're just teaching these machines how to do certain tasks but what he calls intelligence means it has to be able to build reference frames these models of the world and he's saying as of yet almost none of the ai that we have does these things so he says we need to change the way essentially what he's saying is by now understanding the brain better by his research that he posits or puts forward here others uh, as well we need to create artificial intelligence that mirrors this type of thinking or the way that the brain actually works to create an actually, uh, you know, AI that has general intelligence, AGI. Um, he also talks about how he doesn't think, uh, he doesn't worry so much about machines taking over. So anytime you read books about artificial intelligence, whether it's, uh, you know, academic books or fiction, uh, nonfiction, or books that are fiction, you'll commonly see concerns about, well, what if the machines take over? What if the machines we make, the artificial intelligence, we can no longer control it and it takes over? And so now that we're at, com at a commercial break, after the break, I'll share some of his thoughts about that and some uh, thoughts he also includes in the third part of the book. Again, I'm talking about A Thousand Brains. A New Theory of Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion on the book, A Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins, A New Theory of Intelligence. So as I mentioned before the break, um, his outlook about artificial intelligence. So to begin with, as I said, he doesn't think it's intelligent because it doesn't have at least the ways it's been done, this capability of creating models and based on those models, making decisions or understandings of the world. Essentially, most of the time we're teaching it how to do a certain task. Um, so, uh, but as I was saying also, he's actually optimistic or not as pessimistic about some of the things that you often hear that what if the machines take over what if when they become self-aware, machines are going to want to use us or kill us or do something really bad? And he says he's not so worried about that because he says that 
Well, the way I would say it is it's that we're anthropomorphizing the robots or the machines, thinking like that they would think like us, which throughout history we have tried to kill each other or use each other if we could to get what we wanted to dominate and subjugate each other people. So we assume that, well, once the machines are aware and if they're more powerful than us in certain ways, then of course they're going to try to kill us or to use us as essentially labor or to use our resources in whatever way. And so he says they wouldn't have essentially that desire, which I think in a way makes sense. And I guess it's part of it. It's not that they wouldn't, but it depends, I think, on the value systems we give to the machines. Now, you might think it's weird when we talk about machines or AI to talk about values or morality or ethics, but essentially we have to give the machines or the artificial intelligence some guiding principles. So if you want to call it values, guiding principles, if it's going to be independent and getting to going to live on its own, it's doing some things or it's maybe not doing some things or it prioritizes certain things that has to be value based. Um, I think it's hard to imagine or I don't think it is possible to create something that doesn't have values unless you're saying just memorize all of these facts or compute these numbers. But if it's then going to do certain things, it might, I think it's necessary that it's going to have some level of values or things that have to be there. This reminds me of the book um, Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin, a very good book that I read last year, that explores some of these issues of how we might think that, well, if it's artificial intelligence, how could it be racist or how can it be sexist? But because it's us humans creating the artificial intelligence and we can have our own biases, our own prejudices for or against certain groups, then it's going to be embedded in how the artificial intelligence acts. So as she put it um, in that book or the story, one of the stories or incidents she described in that book, Race After Technology, was when they did a AI beauty contest. And so they said, we're going to have the first ever AI beauty contest, send in your pictures, and we're going to pick a bunch of different winners, or the AI is going to pick a bunch of different winners. And so initially, when you hear this, you think, okay, well, if it's AI, then it's not going to have any biases that maybe are going to be in typical beauty contests, because it's just a machine. How can a machine be biased? But then what they found was that an overwhelming majority, I forgot the percentage, I think it was maybe even over 90% or something, were white people that were chosen to be the winners of this beauty contest. And they realized that the reason for this was that they were feeding the machines or the way it was being trained on what's beautiful or not beautiful was looking more at white pictures than non-white pictures. So we can think that because it's a machine, it doesn't have any way of of thinking on its own, but we program the machine to have certain values or to value certain things. So in that way, I don't think I would feel like he does that it can't be a problem, but I think it would depend on what types of values we put into the machines. And it's even complicated of what that really means, but there has to be some way to me of guiding principles that have to be there, if we're especially making them self-sufficient or making that they can just 
be independent artificial intelligence. What he actually says is what would be more concerning is the possibility that someone, a human, a bad acting human, could use the power of artificial intelligence in a negative way. Let's say they can create drones that are um, you know, attacking people or killing people, but the drones themselves would not want to um, uh, would not want to kill people on their own. So that's kind of what his thought was on that, on artificial intelligence, on the future. As I said, he was not as pessimistic about that. Now, the third part of the book, he also talks about, he makes another dichotomy that to me is a little bit more blurry or I have a little bit of question with it. He says knowledge over genes, essentially. So by that, he means that throughout our evolution of all animals, but even in human evolution, we had to prioritize the spreading of genes. Basically, we have to mate and take care of our kids so that our genes get passed down generation to generation. But then now we've advanced to the point where we can create or have knowledge, and that he's saying that knowledge is, in a way, what we should focus on, or if we have to make a decision, we should choose knowledge over genes, or knowledge over essentially what I felt like you were saying was like the emotional things in life, or what, what drives us in the old brain. So it's kind of new brain versus old brain. And to me, this is a little bit of a, a complicated type of a thing. This is the part where I was saying to me also rings of some kind of human exceptionalism that our, our thinking and ability to create knowledge is the most important thing. Uh, and I think, yes, being slaves to our genes is not necessarily good, but I think that is knowledge necessarily the best thing or the most important thing? In a way, that's what I felt like he was saying. To me, what about morality or justice? Now, could you say that's part of knowledge? Maybe. But it seemed like a lot of what he was talking about was um, spreading our knowledge or preserving our knowledge. And he had some interesting notions of even how could we preserve human knowledge because now hopefully he mentions um, climate change and nuclear annihilation as two potential existential threats that humans have created for themselves. But even if that doesn't happen, eventually the sun burns out or for some reason, human beings won't always be here. But he was saying, well, why don't we make sure we preserve our knowledge? And he come up with a few theories, something like an Earth wiki, basically a satellite that maybe orbits somewhere in the, the galaxy, even it could be close to the sun, but survives the sun's heat and is constantly being updated with the knowledge and information from Earth interesting concept and idea and i'm not saying it's not important or definitely i think it's something to consider to contemplate these types of things but the part as i said i had an issue with was when we focus on these things and this has actually come up recently with the race to space i don't know if they've called it that but that you know i think it's i don't know, elon musk jeff bezos richard branson trying to get go to outer space or whatever you want to consider that. And I've seen some people comment or write about that, that we're spending all this money just to have this like, you know, race to space, something kind of fun, when the money could be used to preserve or help people who are suffering currently on Earth. And so I think these things are complicated because it's not an either or, like we should just do one thing or the other. But it does make me think, should we be putting resources to, let's say, preserving knowledge so that maybe if we ever lose our you know life if humans go away the knowledge is preserved where we can also use those resources to protect and take care of human beings here on earth 
who currently are not doing okay. Or he talks about the possibility of living on Mars, um, which I think, okay, we can explore that. And I'm not saying don't look at that. But shouldn't we also be looking at how can we protect the planet and protect the people that are already here? Uh, I had this image in my mind of kind of how we prioritize things. And yes, you know, you don't want to be short-sighted. You always will have things that come up in the present. And if you don't think about the future or prepare for the future, you won't find time for it. But I was imagining a group of scientists that are about to meet to plan okay, how are we going to, let's say, create life on Mars, or how are we going to preserve human knowledge for all of eternity in some way? And then one of their scientists starts choking, and they say, well, you know what? Let him choke. Let's go get to work. Well, no, we should save that person first and then get to the meeting about whatever they're going to do to plan things. And I think that's an analogy. Maybe it seems dramatic or extreme, but I don't think it's that different from what's currently going on here on Earth, where we have people that are suffering that are here, that are alive, but we're thinking about some of these things that are, you know, about some people living on Mars, preserving our knowledge. And to me, this in a way seems like we're, without recognizing it or not, some people, and I'm already making a division there, but are not including all of us when they say humans, because they're thinking of going uh, to Mars when Earth is not habitable and people can't live here, but there's already people who, already people who are dying here who don't have the resources they need. So for them already, Earth is uh, uninhabitable. They're not surviving or doing okay, and we have the resources to take care of them. It might take some money or uh, coordination to get it to those people, but to me it just seems a little bit off to be thinking of, we're going to go to these other frontiers. Again, it's not black or white that we can't think about both things. But I feel that we can take care of people first. And so that's what I mean when he's talking about knowledge over genes and makes it this this kind of dichotomy that it's one or the other. First of all, you know, the way of separating those things, you know, even when we enjoy knowledge, we maybe can say we think about it and it's better than something else, but it involves things like feelings as well. We feel something about knowledge and that it's good to understand things. And so these things are, of course, very abstract and complicated, but to me, separating completely something like knowledge from all feeling or that doesn't matter, I, I kind of disagreed with the, the how black and white he made those things. And to me, that we should actually focus on uh, preserving life, preserving humans. If he's, you know, he's talking about going to live on Mars. Well, that's because we want to preserve human beings as a species. Okay. But if people are already suffering that are alive, what should we do about that? Should we be focusing on going to another planet first or take care of everyone here? Uh, I also think that once we take care of everyone here and reach to higher levels of morality and justice, that we'll actually be able to do more and coordinate more to do better things together as a planet, as humanity. So that was another part where I slightly disagreed with uh, the author Jeff Hawkins of the book A Thousand Brains, um, where he was making this dichotomy of knowledge over genes. Again, to me, it made me think of this human exceptionalism, that we are somehow different or better than uh, the other living beings, um, and that somehow our way of thinking or our thinking is so much better. And, and you know, what does that even mean, preserving our knowledge? Uh, it's not so clear to me what that would mean. 
uh, off the in the possibility that maybe some other species even talks about interestingly what if there's some you know just like the dinosaurs some mass extinction event like an asteroid that destroys human life maybe in millions of years or however many years an, another intelligent life form will end up on earth kind of like he calls it the planet of the apes scenario um, would we want them to know of our existence? Probably. So it would be good to give them some way, whether it's like one of these satellites, something that orbits the sun, that has the knowledge or history of humankind on there. That, you know, I think those are interesting propositions and things to consider. But again, I feel that if we still can do more to help people here, I don't know if knowledge is just the ultimate human value. And so that's, again, where I think that it's hard to even create intelligence or describe intelligence and have it have no values at all. It is necessary to have those things. So those are just some thoughts about the book. Some parts, like I said, I definitely agree with. Um, I think he brings up some interesting points about artificial intelligence, what it is, what it isn't, how we can possibly use it. And after the break, what I'd like to talk about is he also discusses things like uploading our consciousness so this concept that maybe you know we, we do have this desire which probably comes from this biological desire not to die to live forever and there's a few ways we maybe can do that one is biologically people are doing research to find what causes aging and is there any ways we can reverse or stop aging so that's happening um, he even talks about there's some fish that can be frozen and then later on be brought back to life or when they're thawed so could we somehow through gene editing make that possible for human beings to do that so people could be frozen and then come back to life in however many years um, but then also he describes this concept that is part of science fiction but maybe can become a reality that we can upload our consciousness and in that way live forever so if we fully understand how the brain works all the connections all the the ways that it's acting could we then use that information or that knowledge to upload someone's consciousness onto essentially a computer, cloud, whatever you want to call it, um, and then let the person live forever in that way. So I have some thoughts about that that I do want to share after the break. So let's get back to that. Again, that's my discussion on the book, A Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was talking about the book, A Thousand Brains, by Jeff Hawkins, and he does briefly touch on the concept I did want to talk about in the last segment today, and that is, can we upload our consciousness, just basically upload it into whether you want to call it a computer, a cloud, some kind of AI, and then in that way live forever? or I guess as long as you have data, uh, or as long as you can pay for that data. Uh, and actually, there's a show that has some of those kinds of themes in it that I just mentioned called Upload on, uh, I think it's on Amazon, that I watched uh, this past week. I think it's like 10 episodes. It's pretty interesting. It's kind of more of a comedy show, but it has this concept where when people are dying, uh, or before they die, they can upload their... Uh, consciousness upload themselves onto like this cloud and then virtually even interact with people who are still alive and so it creates all these kind of interesting dynamics between uh, being alive and dead and what you can do and not do and communicate and that joke I made about data does come up that wealthier people can live in better 
if you want to call it heavens in some ways. Other people can't or they run out of data and they're frozen until they get data again. But anyway, it was kind of an interesting show, but it has that this concept. And since it came up in the book, it had me thinking about and reflecting on this idea. Can we upload ourselves, our consciousness, and then exist forever in that way? Um, he touches on it a bit in the book, but it brings up these interesting things that are very abstract, hard for us to really comprehend. One of the main ones that ones that comes up is, who am I? Um, and I'm not having some kind of like mental breakdown, but what I mean is, what does it mean to be me, my sense of self? When I say I want to be uploaded so I live forever, what does that really mean? And so this concept of the sense of self, and actually the book I'll read in two weeks, I forgot the title of it now, but uh, it has this this concept in the title even about this, I think it's called Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keen, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but this theme of who am I and what does it mean to be a, a self is a little bit more complicated than we might think, or we might think it's simple. Um, what does it mean to be me? Am I the same me as last week or even 30 minutes ago? having this experience. There's feels to be some kind of continuity to the sense of self, uh, but is some of that a fiction or an illusion that helps us to continue trying to live or survive or feel so much of a connection to making sure I live and I pass on my genes because there's a sense of self and me. Uh, what does that even mean? And, and even a lot of psychology, what I do in my work is related to people and helping them with their sense of self and self-esteem and how they're feeling and all sorts of things. And so it's a very complicated uh, type of a thing that I think it's hard to really understand because it's so abstract and our brains are always going to be limited, especially when we're trying to understand ourselves. But so when I first think about this uploading my consciousness, um, so he kind of talks about this in a way in the book. Jeff Hawkins has uh, briefly this kind of paragraph or so about this. But so imagine this. I'm here and before I die, they're going to upload my consciousness. So now they've uploaded my consciousness and now it exists there. Am I here and also in the computer? And then, you know, in the way we kind of think of it, is this me feeling both of them, both of those experiences? I don't know. To me, it's actually like there's a me that has feelings that's experiencing my experience as this being, as this body and everything that's connected to me. And even that might be fictional or an illusion. And then if there's me that's being uploaded in this computer, then there's going to be a separate, there's going to be another being there or something that's feeling things, let's say. But I don't know if it's going to be me or I'm going to feel that anymore. So this idea that I would then live forever, I don't think that's true. I think that when I would then die physically, then this me would not be here and there could be this uploaded version of me, but it wouldn't be me. It might, what I think is actually interesting is I would no longer feel me. I, I would no longer exist, but people interacting with that version of me might feel the same way they did when they interacted with me. So I won't exist forever in a way, but I'll exist forever for everyone else. And I, I know I'm talking about myself. It could be anyone. But I would be existing for everyone else, but not me feeling it, or there would be some new being, which is hard to understand what that would even mean. Um, so I don't know if this would give us this. What I think people are looking for is if I wanted to live forever, I don't think you would live forever 
there is some being, you are experiencing something. And then once you would die, if there's another version of you living forever, I don't think that would mean that you are experiencing that. Just like if we found a way to clone you at exactly this age that you are now, what do you think would happen? Like you would be feeling it both or experiencing both you and the clone, or if you made 10 clones or a hundred clones, I don't know. Then there's also this way of thinking, well, aren't we all interconnected? So you're all of them in a way too. But that kind of, I think is abstraction in a different way, but might, maybe that's true. Uh, but as you can see, it's very, you know, it almost makes your head hurt when you think about these things, because it's hard for us to really, I think, to comprehend what we're even really talking about. What are we trying to really say when we say any of these things? So that's my first issue with it is this, it almost seems like we think I'm going to get transported to this virtual world, but all I am is these collection of cells. In this case, we're saying the brain. Now, we don't even know when you take a brain away from the body, what is that experience like? Maybe it needs those things to have experience, but nonetheless, I don't know if I would be then transported into the computer in that same way that maybe it's being thought of. So there's that part of it of what is even me and do I feel both of those, which I don't think I would. It's hard for me to really get how that would happen. I think this gets to this idea that we feel like each person has an essence. And I think I feel that way. Like when you love someone and you get close to them, you feel something when you're around them. I've talked about something called like an electronic signature where everyone makes you feel a certain way when you interact with someone that you care about, someone you love. Um, you, you feel something around them, which feels almost like an essence. And so even when I've talked about ghosts, I think a big thing that might be happening a lot of people's experiences with ghosts is that when they, they've lost a loved one, the person has died, and now every so often, and before they died, they had an emotional signature that that person had on them, something they would feel with that person. And now even though they've died, something happens, something triggers whatever it is that makes them then feel like the person is there. So they really do feel their presence in the sense that they are feeling the same way they would feel when they were around this person. And so it feels like, okay, they can't be dead because I feel them here. But what I think is happening is actually you are just feeling their emotional presence or the emotional experience you have, what I'm calling an emotional signature. And even if they're not there, you can still have an experience of this. And now that I'm saying this, even what I think if you upload someone's consciousness again, what that exactly means is complicated. When you would interact with them, well, you feel like they're still there, right? You would interact with them. You might feel it like, oh, I'm talking to that person. But I don't know if the person you know used to know would be feeling that thing, which is what is really complicated about that. Just like even today, I looked at a video of me and my grandmother interacting. My grandmother passed away less than a month ago. And when I watched the video, I got emotional. I was crying. Actually, don't, I, I maybe don't want to say it that way because I think like when people say I got emotional, it means you had to have been crying when emotional should mean anything. But I started crying because I was missing her. But because I was looking at her in a video, I mean, it felt very real, like I was seeing her and in that way being with her. Doesn't mean she's still around. I felt the same way I did in interacting with her. But I know it doesn't mean she's actually was there. And I think that's what some people are feeling when they think they're a ghost is present. And I think that's something like what happens if we upload people's consciousness where the person interacting with the me, 
will feel like I'm there. But I don't think I will have any experience of that, or at least the me that's here right now in front of you, again, whatever that would mean. Now, another thing that's complicated about uploading people uh, and their consciousness is it implies in a way a staticness or that I'm kind of a fixed thing or my brain even is a fixed thing. And what we've learned very clearly in the last uh, even for a while now, but especially in the last few decades, is that even the adult human brain is plastic. It's not something completely set in stone. We used to think that when you're a child and through adolescence, lots of changes are going on. But once you get to adulthood, it's just very fixed. Really, the only thing that can happen is damage or you would lose brain cells or brain functioning, but not that you would have plasticity. But now we know it's totally not true and the brain is a very plastic and evolving type of a living thing, a living thing within us, just like our other organs, that's not frozen. So if you were to upload me today, and even if somehow it's me or you know whatever, we get past that part of it, let's not even think of that part, um, and then I was still alive for a while, those two me's, two different versions of, of me or me or two same versions of me at that moment, but now by tomorrow, they're going to be a little bit different. They're not just one me. So even to me, that's the part where I have a hard time where people think, oh, you're just going to upload them. Well, even if you upload someone, now maybe you say somehow we freeze that. I don't know. You know, again, the technology that would allow for these things might allow for a lot of different things to happen. Um, but if you did that, then it wouldn't be able to form new memories. So if I'm interacting with people, if I'm able to form new memories or have new experiences, you know, using the language of Jeff, Jeff Hawkins with my reference frames and things like that, I would have to be able to have a plastic brain in the sense that it would have to be able to change and evolve. But if that's the case, then who I am won't be who I was when I got uploaded. And again, it starts to create some other complicated factors of who am I and all of that. But how do we even upload someone in a static state? It has to be evolving and changing. So when would we say it's no longer them? And also, what do we then expose this me to when it's there? Because whatever it's experiencing, once it gets uploaded, that's going to constantly change who I am or who that being is. So we can see it's a very complicated, uh, obviously, type of a thing. And maybe 50 years ago, it was purely science fiction to imagine anything like this uploading a brain with advancements in both our understandings of the brain and advancements in technology and computer types of technology. It's more of a possibility to explore these types of uh, you know things. But I do wonder if they offered it to me what I want to be uploaded. Um, I think there's obviously a curiosity and maybe we would want to see what would happen. But my thinking is that I wouldn't be experiencing whatever happens there because I don't know how you transport what I feel here. Uh, I think each thing that's living it has its own experience. Just like if you have identical twins who right when they're born, let's say, are genetically identical, we don't think they're both feeling. We're thinking they're two individual beings. So it, to me, it's a very complex kind of phenomenon. I think it's worth looking at and exploring because um, I, I think it our technology might go in the direction where we can do some of these types of things, but maybe not completely. Um, but it's going to bring a whole bunch of, as is always the case with new technologies, things about morals and ethics and can we do it? Should we do it? What are the risks? 
Um, but as I said, I don't think it's going to give people what they think it will. This idea that if I get uploaded, I can now live forever. What I think might be interesting is going back to this idea that the brain is plastic and, and thinking. And even when we think about creativity, it's the brain thinking about things it already knows or different aspects of knowledge or understanding, but now looking at it in a new way or recombining things. Is there a possibility if we are able to upload brains in certain ways that they could constantly be thinking and creating new ideas that we think about, but maybe you can do it in an accelerated way because we can use the you know AI types of technology. So the brains could be thinking and thinking about new ideas. Then you'd have to way of sorting what's a good idea and a bad idea, which I think, again, would have some kind of value judgment that has to be there, or maybe the brains themselves can do something. Again, these are very abstract types of things that involve lots of, we don't even know what the technology is that lets it happen and so many things that happen there. But I think that's something I could see happening not as beings experience or I get to experience that, but if they upload all of our brains into some kind of technology, maybe there's a way that the brains could think and communicate and keep working that allows them to think of new ideas. Um, you know, even I think about, uh, he talks about in the book how movement is necessary for all types of knowledge, not necessarily physical movement, but moving to create these mental frames. Uh, it makes me think about how, you know, even on what I do for this show, we're talking about these ideas because I talk about them and the ideas are coming out. It's almost like they're exercising and they get stronger in that way because they're there and they're not frozen. So I can imagine something where if we upload brains, they might be able to th practice or keep thinking and make ideas that are stronger or newer and things like that. So these are all very abstract concepts, but I wanted to share some of my thoughts on this notion of uploading our consciousness, some of the the issues I find in a fundamental type of way of how people think about it that I think might be worth thinking about. Hopefully it made you think a bit too. And if you have any thoughts or ideas agreeing or disagreeing with what I said, feel free to send them my way because it's something I'm really just thinking out loud with you a lot of these thoughts as well. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. 